Father, we pray that you might give us open eyes, open ears, open hearts as we look at these difficult words this morning. Show us Christ our Saviour, we pray. Amen. We've been thinking about the musical idea of motifs in our series this Lent. Um, Another musical term is crescendo. Um, A crescendo, if you don't know, is when a piece of music gets louder and louder and intenser as it kind of heads towards a climax. Uh, And Isaiah is a book with a crescendo. Um, Back in chapter 39, uh, we received devastating news for God's people. Uh, The ancient fortress of Babylon is going to attack. God's people will be destroyed. They'll be sent into exile. But then chapter 40 begins with God saying, comfort, comfort my people, and the sovereign Lord will come. We skip ahead to 42, and we learn that God's chosen servant is the one who will come. Chapter 49, we see that princes will bow down. This servant will be the redeemer, the holy one of Israel. And then chapter 52, which, uh, which we sung a little bit earlier in this service, we, we reach fever pitch. Uh, if you've got a Bible, uh, have a look now at Isaiah 52. I'll read from verse 7. How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news, who proclaim peace, who bring good tidings, who proclaim salvation, who say to Zion, your God reigns. Listen, your watchmen lift up their voices, Together they shout for joy. When the Lord returns to Zion, they will see it with their own eyes. Burst into songs of joy together, you ruins of Jerusalem. For the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord will lay bare his holy arm in the sight of all the nations, and all the ends of the earth will see the salvation of our God's. Do you hear the promises? Do you feel the anticipation? The Lord will lay bare his holy arm. The servant will come and he will save. And all the ends of the earth will see. Not just salvation for one person now as we saw with Abraham and Isaac or for one family as we saw at the Passover or for one people as we saw on the Day of Atonement last Sunday but salvation available for the whole world. And then in 52 verse 13, where Sarah began to read, we meet the servant. See my servant will act wisely, says the Lord. He'll be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. We see the servant and he will be everything we expect. But then verse 14 comes. Just as there were many who were appalled at him, his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any human being, and his form marred beyond human likeness. Many appalled at him, his appearance so disfigured that he barely looked like a human being at all. This doesn't sound right. This doesn't sound like what we need. We We were expecting the entrance of a king here. What do you mean people were appalled at him? What do you mean he was disfigured? Yet verse 15, 
he will sprinkle many nations and kings will shut their mouths because of him. This shell of a human being will silence the world, Isaiah says. Putin, Trump, Macron, Biden, Boris, Sunak, all will fall silent before him. And verse 50, chapter 53, verse 1, the arm of the Lord will be revealed. Let's pray that we are those with eyes open to see and understand this servant today. So Isaiah 52, verse 13, and begins with a call to see the servant. So we've got four points this morning, all based around that idea of seeing. Who is this servant that we are to see? Our first, see the servant suffering. From Isaiah 53, verses 2 and 3. See the servant suffering. Right, look down with me at verse 2. Uh, he, that's the servant, grew up before him, that's God the Father, like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. The first thing we learn about this servant is that he arrived not fully formed, not yet the complete package. He, he had to grow. He didn't sort of teleport or, or descend from the clouds. He came out of a woman's womb, just like each of us. And he grew, just like each of us. He grew up before people. He grew up before God. He was perfect, but he wasn't mature. He didn't arrive fully formed. Verse 2 continues, He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He didn't grow into someone who was particularly easy on the eye. If you walked past him in the queue for a coffee at the end of the service, you wouldn't have given him a second look in physical terms. He wasn't in human terms attractive didn't have a particularly strong jawline, particularly broad shoulders, a particularly wide chest. It doesn't seem that he had a particularly magisterial air, a command-the-room sort of presence. In physical terms, he looked normal. To look at his physical appearance wasn't to gain any clue of a, a great specialness or distinctiveness about this person. He looked normal. A strange thought, perhaps. Verse 3, he was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised and we held him in low esteem. The next thing we see about this servant is that he was hated. He was despised, rejected, scorned, written off, cancelled in the language of 2023. He lived on the edge of society. He knew suffering and pain as close friends. People crossed the road to avoid him. And notice how Isaiah slips in a more personal pronoun at the end of verse 3. Not just he was hated by people, but we held him in low esteem. We hated him gets personal here. More on that to come later. So the first thing Isaiah shows us uh, is the servant's suffering. And second, see the servant stricken. From verses 4 to 6, see the servant stricken. And Isaiah uses 12 different Hebrew words in these verses 
to depict the suffering of this servant. Despised, rejected, pain, suffering, punished, stricken, afflicted, pierced, crushed, wounded, oppressed, slaughtered, judged, cut off, and assigned a grave. We don't have time now to go through uh, each one of them and its nuances, but just to pick out a few. Um, Pierced, in verse 5, what we tend to think of um, of piercing ears, don't we? Maybe noses, maybe eyebrows, belly buttons, a bit more rebellious. Um, His body was pierced, not just a little bit of cartilage, his his body. Or crushed, further down in verse 5, we might crush ice. Uh, grain is crushed to make our bread. Maybe we crush garlic or frozen fruit to make a smoothie. He was crushed. We're jumping down to verse 8. Cut off. Ever seen someone cut off? Think of a divorce, a bad breakup, ghosting. Children and parents not speaking anymore. Cut out of the family photos. Phone numbers deleted. The servant was cut off. But this isn't the sorry tale of a wicked man finally getting his comeuppance, a once revered hero revealed to now be a scoundrel. No, for he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. But the slightly ambiguous many that we had in chapter 52, verse 14, and verse 15, becomes our, in verse 4. And I think there's a quiet insistence and emphasis on that word that comes up again and again. He took our pain and bore our suffering. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. The servant suffered for us. The servant suffered because of us. Isaiah puts us right in the spotlight, every one of us. Don't think that you can avert your eyes. The servant suffered, not because he was guilty, but because we are. But maybe that doesn't ring true. This sin idea, it feels a bit antiquated, out of place, not a label that that, that sticks on you. Well, let's for a moment consider three of the ways that Isaiah defines what sin is in this passage. Uh, Verse 5, he was pierced for our transgressions. Uh, To transgress means to rebel. It's a conscious decision to flout a known rule. The sign says 50, well, I'm going to go at 70 because I can see that nothing's coming. My body's a temple, yes, but I really need this pick-me-up. Forgive them? No thanks, I'd rather cling on to my anger. Um, So sin is rebellion. Um, Next, uh, later verse 5, he was crushed for our iniquities. Um, This word iniquity, it it means perversion. It it means being bent out of shape, misformed, tainted, impure. And if we look inside ourselves, I think we know that the insides of our hearts are darker than we would care to admit. Even at our best, we're still not what we should be. As I clap my hands in congratulation, there's that little seed of jealousy. It should have been me. I tell them how much I love them and that it will be okay. 
And yet there's that seed of anger or of scorn. How did they get it so wrong? Again, sin is perversion. It's being bent out of shape. And then third in verse six, we all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. Whether we've made a beeline for a different field or we've strayed out of the pasture without realizing, we all like sheep have wandered away. We've picked our own path over God's. We've left his pasture for another. And so sin is going our own way, Isaiah tells us. The servant suffered because of our sin. Let's not think that we can avert our eyes. And he didn't, he didn't suffer merely in sympathy with us and our sin. This isn't the doting husband going without food or sleep at the hospital bed of his sick wife as if somehow by depriving himself of what he needs, he could somehow take her suffering for her. The servant, he didn't didn't suffer with us. He suffered instead of us. Verse 6 again. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The good and righteous punishment for our sin that should have come to us, God gave to him. He suffered instead of us. And another possible misconception. This wasn't a sort of shifting the balance suffering. A bit like um, when your mum and dad come in on your mortgage with you. They pay half your deposit, you pay the other half. This wasn't the servant taking part of our suffering, leaving us with a little bit less to take ourselves. The servant took it all. We've just sung it. He put down 100%. Our balance sheet just says paid in full. The servant paid it all. We still might face some natural human consequences of of sin, of our own, of each other's. Let, Let your temper run loose and you might find that people want to keep their distance from you. Fail to love your spouse and marriage might feel quite difficult. Exasperate your children and they... They may well resent you. We may feel some natural consequences of our sin, but the cost, the blood required, as we've been learning in this substitution series, as Phil has just reminded us, that's been entirely taken away. When we reach the throne room of God on the final day, there'll be nothing to say, because there'll be nothing left to pay. The servant has paid it all. What a bitter irony. In verse 4, that we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted, as if the servant were getting his just deserts, while we, sitting high and mighty, were the innocent ones, far from the case. So first we saw the servant rejected. Then we see the servant stricken. And third, we see the servant silenced. In verses 7 to 9, we see the servant silenced. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. From one image of sheep in verse 6 to another. Um, But this time the sheep is the servant rather than us. And we're told that he was silent as he went to his slaughter. Isaiah carries on, verse 8. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, yet who of his generation protested? 
for he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people he was punished. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. It's clear as we, as we get to this point that the servant wasn't merely rejected, punished. He was killed, cut off from the land of the living, punished with the death penalty that his people deserved, buried with the wicked and the wealthy, despite his innocence, with not a single voice to speak up for him. The servant was silenced. But I think we see our our substitution motif develop a little bit here. Because last week, um, as we jumped from Leviticus to Hebrews, we saw that the death of a lamb, a goat, a ram, wasn't actually enough. And it could never be enough. It's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins, Hebrews said. No animal, no matter how perfect, how blemish-free, how innocent, could pay for the sins of a person. It could never be enough. But this servant, well, he may have been like a silent sheep, staying quiet, not opening his mouth, but he wasn't like a stupid sheep. Silent because it doesn't realize it's being led to its death. Or silent because it knows there's nothing it can do to escape the hands of its shearer. This servant is like a silent sheep, not a stupid one. He knew exactly where he was heading, and yet he held his tongue. He did not fight. He did not resist. He did not open his mouth. He submitted. And here's the difference. Here's why no animal could ever be enough. Because no animal could go willingly. No lamb could raise its hand. Pick me. I'll go. I'll take this people's sin. It's ridiculous to imagine. No animal could go willingly. Only a human being could. And this servant did. He went willingly to his death for a people who have willfully rebelled against their God. Because sin, it's not not just failure, defect, accident, a fault in my genes, because of my background, my upbringing, the world I live in, a slip-up, out of character, not the real me, a one-off. It can be all those things, and often is. There's something more to sin willful. Just as when Adam and Eve first chose to pluck that piece of fruit off the tree and eat it, so it is with us. We choose to sin. And so we need a substitute who could choose to give himself for us. Enter the servant. We've seen the servant rejected, suffering, stricken, Silent and silenced. Fourth, see the servant satisfied. From verses 10 to 12. See the servant satisfied. Verse 10. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. Perhaps one of the most chilling verses in this passage. We want to look on maybe and imagining 
Imagine God's, God's heart going out in sympathy, try, trying to stop this terrible scene. But no, it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. It was God's desire that this servant be crushed. This wasn't some last-ditch, 11th hour, anything's worth a try, attempt by the servant to try and avert the crisis of God's judgment coming. No. It had been planned much more carefully than that. The only way a sinful people could come to a holy, good, and just God was if someone who had lived a perfect life stood in as their substitute. And it was part of God's will, of his eternal plan, that his servant would bear our sin on his shoulders and be crushed by it. It was the only way. But verse 10 continues. It was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. The crushing is not the end of the story. Isaiah lets us in on a great secret. For we shift in verse 10 from past tense, it's been past tense from verse 2 all the way through to the first verb of verse 10 into present tense with the word makes and then into future tense. He will see his offspring and prolong his days. Lean in, says Isaiah. Listen, God's told me the servant will win. The grave of verse 9 is not the end. For verse 11, after he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. The servant will be satisfied. Satisfied because he will see that he has succeeded in his mission. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many and he will bear their iniquities. The servant will achieve exactly what he set out to do. He will justify. He will bear his people's sin. Though he had no physical offspring, he will have many spiritual offspring who he'll bring into his father's family. The Lord will accept the servant's offering of his life. His mission will be accomplished and the servant will be satisfied. And more than that, the servant will be satisfied because he will be crowned conqueror because of what he has done. Verse 12, therefore I will give him a portion among the great and he will divide the spoils with the strong. Why? Because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors for he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. The servant will be crowned conqueror. He will live, he will claim his people for himself, dividing the spoils with his troops. He'll be seen across the world as the winner. He'll come out on top, not just achieving his mystery and uh, his mission, then fading away, maybe immortalized in a blue plaque or a biopic. No, the conquering king will rule his people for all eternity as king of kings and lord of lords. Why? because he bore the sin of many, because he poured out his life unto death. 
It's all tied to his substitution, to what he's done for us. Who is this servant? Who else could it possibly be? We don't know how much Isaiah knew, how much he saw. It's astonishing. Though God gave him these words to write down hundreds of years before the man about whom they were written would set foot on the earth. Who is this servant? Jesus Christ of Nazareth, God's own son. Who else could possibly fit this description? Who else is good enough to suffer in our place? Who else would choose to? Jesus and Jesus alone, who suffered, was stricken, was silenced, but will one day be satisfied. And could anyone who read this prophecy, could Isaiah himself have possibly imagined that the servant would be God's son himself? That he would rise from the dead? We'll find out in glory, I hope. What are we to do with this today? What are we to do in response to this? Um, if you've got a Bible in front of you, turn to Acts chapter 8. Shortly after, Jesus had been raised and had returned to heaven. The Spirit sent Philip, one of Jesus' disciples, to the desert road to Gaza, where he met an Ethiopian official who was reading this very passage. Um, let's look, read from Isaiah 8, verse 34, which is just after the eunuch tells Philip which passage he's been reading. I may have made a slip up there. <laughs> um, Acts 8, verse 34. The eunuchs asked Philip, tell me please, who is the prophet talking about? Himself or someone else? Then Philip began with that very passage of scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. As they traveled along the road, they came to some water and the eunuch said, look, here is water. What can stand in the way of my being baptized? And he gave orders stop the chariot. Then both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water and Philip baptized him. When they came up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord suddenly took Philip away and the eunuch did not see him again, but went on his way rejoicing. What better picture of a response could the New Testament give us than what we see here? What other response could there be to this astonishing truth? and to call on the name of Christ, and if you have not already, to be baptized. So let me ask you this morning, have you called on the name of Christ? Have you been baptized? Maybe. Maybe you're not sure yet whether you believe. Maybe you have unanswered questions. Maybe you've been hurt in the past. Maybe you're aware of how high the cost for following Christ is. Let me urge you not to delay any longer. I'm sure the Ethiopian official had many of the same questions and more. Isaiah couldn't make it any clearer. There's a bounty on each of our heads, a bounty we cannot pay, a bounty that will crush us, a debt that eternity in hell will not be enough to pay off. But 
Christ has offered to bear it for us. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest, he says. Christ has offered to bear our burden for us. We don't have to carry it any longer. Give it to him. Don't delay. Maybe there are some in this room who believe, haven't yet been baptised. Uh, perhaps been considering the Christian message for a little while. You understand it. It excites you. You've accepted it. You would consider yourself a follower of Jesus, but you've not yet made it public. You've not yet told the world that you're his, declared what he's done for you. Or maybe some are younger, growing up in the church. You've had your questions, but you know now that you believe. You've seen a few people go before you and get baptised, but you're waiting. You feel like, you feel like you'll, need, you need to, you'll know when, it, when it's the right time, although you're not sure how you'll know. Well, don't delay. Ask questions. Find out more. Consider whether it might be time for you to get baptised. Or maybe baptism's a, a, a tricky issue for you. Perhaps you were brought up outside the church, but baptised into, into tradition, or baptised by parents who, who said they were Christian, but, but you're just not quite sure. And you just don't really want, want to go there. It's complicated, lots of emotions wrapped up in it. We don't believe at Morden Road Church that the Bible is clear enough to say that baptism as believer is the only valid baptism. And we certainly don't believe that the Bible says that baptism is essential for salvation. After all, Christ promised the clearly unbaptized thief on the cross that he'd be with him in paradise. But we do believe as a church that Jesus tells believers to get baptized. And that each believer needs to be satisfied that they've been baptised, whether as an adult or as an infant. So if you, if you fall into that tricky space, if it's a tricky issue for you, do come and explore it with uh, one of our pastors or elders. Or talk to a good friend in the first instance. Ask questions. Pray with us. Let us help you work out what it means for you to be baptised into Christ. Don't just put it off forever. Don't delay. Or maybe you believe and have already been baptized. Let me read that final verse that I read from Acts 8. When they came up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord suddenly took Philip away, and the eunuch did not see him again, but went on his way rejoicing. That's the last we see of this eunuch, heading off into glory, rejoicing. And so if you believe and have been baptized, brother, sister, go on your way rejoicing as our Ethiopian brother in Christ has done before us. Rejoice this Easter that your shoulders are free of that weight, that your back will not be broken, that your palms will not feel those nails. Rejoice this Easter that you will never bear that burden, that you will never face God's judgment, that you will never know a moment as Christ did when you cry out to the Father and he turns away. Rejoice this Easter that the Son of God came to be the servant for you. It was the Lord's will to crush his own Son for you. That the Son went willingly and silently like a sheep to the cross for you. Rejoice this Easter that your sins are washed away. That you have been cleaned as white as snow 
that you can come into the presence of the living, holy God and worship him for all eternity, the crucified, risen and reigning king. A few moments of silence and I'll leave you breath. Father, we thank you for these glorious ancient words of Isaiah of this servant who would suffer, who'd be stricken, who'd be silenced, and yet would one day be satisfied. We thank you that in the gospel we see extraordinarily that this servant is your very own son who came willingly to bear our sin and to take away your judgment that we rightly deserved. And thank you that we have seen what Isaiah barely glimpsed, which is that your son was risen, that he reigns now over all the nations for all eternity. And Father, I pray that we might hear what we need to hear from you this morning, whether for some that's the the call uh, to call on Christ and believe in him, for others the call to be baptized, and for those of us who already know Christ, the joy that we can know in being his. We pray that we will know that joy all the greater and evermore. Amen. As we respond to Jesus, suffering, stricken, silenced in our place, we believe, we call on his name, we get baptized if we haven't already been, We rejoice as our Ethiopian brother did. The scripture also calls us to remember. Uh, We saw it in Exodus a couple of weeks ago. But for us, we don't remember through the annual festival of the Passover. Uh, We remember through a different meal, a meal our Savior has given us to remember what he has done for us by. Uh, But Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 tells us that this meal It's something more than remembering. It's not just marking a past event. It's not just a mental activity that we do on our own, in our minds. It's a participation in the blood of Christ. In this meal, Christ is here with us by his spirit, present among us. We eat as his people who live not on bread alone, but by his word. And we're nourished deep within our souls. Paul writes, is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ? And is not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one loaf. We who are many are one body, for we all share the one loaf. As we eat, we participate in Christ. We have fellowship with him and he nourishes our souls. And so this is a meal that we take together. Whatever may uh, make us distinct in human terms, in Christ we are one body. And as we eat together, we mark that we are one people in him. And it's a meal for those who've believed in and called on Christ already. We cannot participate in a saviour that we haven't claimed 
So perhaps if you've not yet given your life to Christ, perhaps just watch what's going on and reflect and don't eat the bread or drink the wine. And it's a meal that we eat with seriousness and with joy. Seriousness as we reflect on the depths of our sin and what it cost Christ to bring us into uh, his family. And joy as we celebrate Christ with us and as we look ahead to the great heavenly banquet that this little meal foreshadows. So let's just take a few moments in silence now, reflecting, praying, confessing our sin and thanking God before we eat and drink. Mm -hmm.